The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank You for this time to gather together and study Your Word. We are reminded the Scripture says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That it is Your Word that gives us the information we need in order to correct our thinking, to renew our thinking, as the Scripture says, that we might think Your thoughts after You, that we might have our thinking aligned with the divine viewpoint of the Scriptures. Father, we pray that as we study now, we might be responsive to your teaching and submit ourselves to your word that we might have our lives transformed that by it, under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we might advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we got together, what with ice storms. We can at least be thankful that the storm we're going to get tonight didn't come in last night. It seems what this year we've had to cancel Sunday morning three times. And uh, I've had three engagements at a church over in Poughkeepsie. Of course, see, that's driving. That's not flying. And three engagements that that, uh, were to begin on a Friday night and a snowstorm moved in on a Friday morning. So this has been a tough winter as far as... um, to the teaching of doctrine goes. So we uh, must be involved in some aspect of the angelic conflict. So we will still get the word out. First John chapter 1. Now we are reminded, I want to remind you that in First John, John is writing to his, to his uh, recipients to emphasize how a believer maintains fellowship with God. It's not written to teach anybody how to be saved. There is information about that in the last section of the book. But there are at least four purpose statements in the epistle, and each purpose statement has to do with another and different aspect of that epistle. For example, we saw in 1 John 1, 4, these things we write so that our joy may be complete. That these things there refers to the message that he is proclaiming. This message is emphasized in verse 1, what was from the beginning. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld in our hands handled concerning the message of life. Corrected translation. This is what we proclaim to you. Verse 2. Verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. And then we'll see in verse 5 a return to the message. 
So these things, that is, what we had empirical information about as apostles in terms of the person and work of Jesus Christ is what we are proclaiming proclaiming to you that if you understand who and what Jesus Christ is, you can have fellowship with us, which is tantamount to having fellowship with God because our fellowship is with God. That's the essence of that first section and why why he states uh, that he has written that. This next section, which extends from verse 5 down through 2.2, is explained in 2.1. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you might not sin. And there it is, he's not saying believers don't sin. He is stating that sin breaks fellowship with God. The theme of the epistle is how to maintain and enjoy that fellowship with God how to have fellowship with God. And I've emphasized the fact that fellowship is spoken of in terms of something we possess and enjoy, not something that it's not some, a, a, simply a static concept. So often we use the phrase in fellowship as, as we would say, well, I'm in church, it's, uh, as it's, if it's positional. It is more than positional. It is enjoying all the benefits, assets, privileges, and blessings that we have as believers because we are in right relationship with God and right relationship to the Holy Spirit. So he is going to talk in this section about what the believer is to do in relationship to personal sin and how we can uh, hopefully avoid sin. We have explored verse 5 in detail. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in there we saw that in order to understand a statement like God is light, we must look to the Old Testament to understand that and to see how the Old Testament used that phrase. And it refers, first of all, to God in His essence, who He is, specifically His righteousness and His justice, what we sometimes call holiness. But holiness is one of those, one of those words that, that is used so frequently in Christian circles that most people don't understand what it means anymore. That's one of the problems I have with so much Christian verbiage is that we use it again and again and again until it, uh, everybody thinks they know what it means and nobody understands it anymore. So we try to come up with different new words or synonyms so that it has a little fresher impact in our lives. God is light emphasizes His righteousness is justice, that is, His integrity, that His righteousness is the standard of his character, and justice is the application of that standard to man. God is light. Light in its purity uh, has no darkness. And John goes on to say in him there is no darkness at all. He is absolute righteous. Light is also used to indicate his truth or his veracity. And in that sense, it moves. There's a movement from God in terms of who he is to God in terms of his self-disclosure what we call revelation, that God not only is light, but that light illuminates others. And so light is used in terms of illumination throughout the Old Testament. It talks about, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, The psalmist says in Psalm 65, In thy light I see light. So it is not just a static concept of his righteousness and justice, but it also speaks of his revelation. Now, the reason I emphasize that is because as we come into the next verse, we're going to hit a very important phrase in verse 6 and again in verse 7. 
Verse 6, we read, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. There has been a tendency among many people to take the phrase walking in the light as restricted to the concept of walking in walking consistent with divine revelation. It is more than that. It is, of course, that, but by going back to verse 5, that God is light, it emphasizes His character also. It is His character and the revelation of His character. It is His integrity and its disclosure to man that are in view here. So walking in the light is not merely walking consistent with the precepts, the mandates, and the prohibitions of Scripture, but is walking in a way that is consistent with who and what God is. We cannot separate the illumination, disclosure, or revelation of God's character from that character. They are linked together in this metaphor that goes throughout Scripture. And the, the reason I emphasize that is if someone emphasizes, and I know of one a commentary, one commentator, professor of mine at Dallas, I had my first year of seminary, taught me Greek, um, state, takes it that way. He, he separates the two. Walking in the lies, walking consistent with Scripture. So if you commit a sin of ignorance, you do something and you don't know it's a sin, then you're not out of fellowship. You only become out of fellowship, he says, when the Holy Spirit reveals to you that what you've committed is a sin and you choose not to confess it in 1 John 1, 9. The problem I have with that is what do you do with somebody like a drug dealer who's down on the streets of Harlem or Third Ward in Houston or someplace like that in South Central Los Angeles and they don't know anything about the Scriptures or what's right or what's wrong and they just do whatever makes them feel good. He's living with some girl and he's running a string of prostitutes and he's uh, dealing drugs and somebody in a street ministry gets him the gospel. But that's all he hears. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So he goes home to his uh, live-in prostitute and he continues to run his prostitute and sells drugs because he hasn't heard any more information other than believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So that means that he's not out of fellowship. Is that what that means? No. I mean, ignorance of the law is never an excuse. Just because you don't know that the, you're, you're going through a, um, a speed limit that's been reduced to 35 is no excuse when the officer pulls you over and says, uh, why were you doing 60? <laughs> well, because that's what the speed limit was, but it changed. Well, I didn't see the sign. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Uh, when we commit a sin, it violates the character of God. It does violate what has been revealed about God in His Scriptures, whether we know it or not. The question we should ask is, how much sin does it take to violate the perfect righteous standard of God? See, that is what breaks fellowship with God and what Paul calls in Ephesians 4.18, quenching the Spirit, and 1 Thessalonians, or grieving the Spirit, and 1 Thessalonians 5, quenching the Spirit. That is that at that point we are... We choose to sin. We break fellowship with God. We stop walking by the Spirit. And so it is at that point that we no longer enjoy fellowship with all of its benefits, assets, and blessings. So we look at the, these 
two verses by way of review, 1 John 1, 5, and 6. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. And notice the message starts with who and what God is. It starts with his essence, his character, that God is light. Everything starts with God. Unfortunately, as fallen creatures, we often want to start with our experience. We want to start with what's familiar to us. But as John says in the message, the starting point is who and what God is. If you try to, if you, this applies even in the gospel. If you're explaining the gospel to somebody, you don't start off appealing to, um, would you like to have a happy and meaningful life? I think that was a track that was passed around for a while that was very popular. How to have a happy and meaningful life. That's not the point of salvation. That is a, whereas the gospel was communicated in that track, it puts the emphasis on wrong things. It appeals to man in terms of his experience as the starting point as opposed to the biblical procedure which, where the starting point is God and his character. And this plays itself out in different ways. I'm reminded of a conversation I had recently, and uh, we were talking about ministry and, and teaching and pastoring. And the problem with most of us, at one point or another, we go to church, we want something that solves our immediate problems. We're going through crises in life, we're going through adversity in life. We want something that will will solve our immediate immediate problems, so we want something to be relevant. And yet we go to Bible class and the pastor's teaching on uh, uh, something like the divine decrees or perhaps teaching on the significance of the uh, sacrificial system in Leviticus or something that seems far removed from the immediate problems we're facing in life. And, and what you often hear people say is, well, we need to make the Bible relevant. And see, that's our anthropocentric or man-centered approach to everything. We want the Bible somehow to, 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 to be relevant to me. And see, the issue in Scripture isn't that, that we need to make the Bible relevant to people. The problem is that people aren't relevant to God. You, this, when the starting point is the absolute standard of God, the issue is, folks, you need to learn what the real issues in life are. The issues aren't what you think they are, and then God has to address your issues. The issues in life are what God says they are, and you need to get your thinking oriented to his absolute definition. And so it's up to the pulpit ministries of this, of this country to teach what the, what the issues are from the Scripture and not go around polling people to find out what they like and what their problems are and what they'd like to learn about and then address that. I mean, this, to me, it just seems so obvious. I mean, how many of you, this is a rhetorical question, I don't want to show of hands, how many of you as parents get your two, three, four, five-year-old kids together and say, well, what do you think are the rules of the household? Why don't you dictate the budget for the household and tell us how we ought to spend our money and what you want? You know exactly what they want. You don't sit them down and say, okay, you plan the menu this week. What do you want for breakfast? What do you want for lunch? What do you want for dinner? You know exactly what they're going to want, candy and sugary cereal and whatever their favorite foods might be. And now and then there might be something green in there like a mint candy. But <laughs> See, so often what we, we do is we want to let the inmates run the asylum instead of uh, establishing for the inmates what the standards are that they need to step up to in order to be able to escape the asylum. So we start with who and what God is, not who and what man is. And so the message begins with who and what God is. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. This is the absolute starting point 
of the character of God. And from this, John is going to lay out several uh, hypothetical situations. These are, these are claims in each of these situations. These are claims set forth by the uh, false teachers that have infiltrated the church at Ephesus and in Asia Minor. And the claims that they are making, we, it's sort of a pre-Gnosticism, as I have said. The claims they are making uh, challenge the basic concept of the basic gospel, who and what Jesus Christ is, that he really wasn't fully human. And this is an assault on the whole spiritual life because in his humanity, Jesus Christ uh, lived out the spiritual life, set the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. And various claims were made by the, these teachers at that time that they really weren't sinners, that, that they really didn't sin, that, that the sin really didn't have an impact on their relationship with God because, of course, if Christ has already paid the penalty for all of my sins then it really doesn't matter what I do, so that this then became a rationalization or an excuse for continuing to sin in a licentious manner without ever having to uh, honestly deal with the prohibitions of the Scriptures. And this is set forth in several uh, if clauses in the English. We have the beginning of verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and Verse 7, but if we walk in the light. And verse 8, if we say. Verse 9, if we confess. Verse 10, if we say. These are called hypothetical or conditional clauses. Now, in English, there is only one way to state an if clause. The if clause itself is called the protasis little technical grammatical vocabulary for you this morning. I know some of you just love this. The if clause is called the protasis. Just remember the P-R-O. That means first. And then you have the concluding clause, the then clause. And that is called the apodosis. Now, the if clause expresses a condition or a supposition the then clause expresses the, the results of the supposition. Now, in Greek, Greek language is much more precise in the way it expresses conditional clauses. In English, we just have, have one way of, of, of stating it. And um, we say, if something or other, then so-and-so. But in Greek, they had four different ways, and each expressed a different nuance. For example, first-class condition indicates uh, that the condition was more probable or likely, sometimes just expressed very simply as if, and assuming it's true, then this. In the second class condition, the if clause is not viewed as probable. Or if and it's not true. The third class condition is the condition of, of a true uh, po uh, possibility, maybe it will, maybe it won't. It could go either way. That's what we normally think of. So, 
it sets forth two legitimate conditions. And then the fourth is a wish, if it were so, and I wish it were, but it's not, then such and so. So, uh, a wish clause, if that might be expressed sometimes when you're talking to your, to your uh, offspring, saying, well, if you were more responsible, I wish you were, but you're not, then I would let you drive the car. Maybe that was expressed to you by your parents. Well, that would be a fourth-class condition in the Greek. See, English loses these kinds of, of uh, nuances. Every now and then you find somebody who's a master of the English language like Winston Churchill who got in a little interchange with George Bernard Shaw who had written a play, sent uh, Churchill tickets to the play and said, uh, you can, uh, to the opening night, he said, uh, Churchill, you can bring a friend if you have one. So Churchill responded by saying, I'll attend the second night if there is one. (laughs) So there's all kinds of different shades of meaning that we can pack into if clauses. And what we have here down through uh, verse 10 are five third-class conditions. If, maybe we do this, maybe we do not do this. These are options in the believer's life. If we say, now the next question we have to ask exegetically is who is the we? This is a first person plural pronoun. Now sometimes in, sometimes we might say, well, if we do such and so, and we use that term in conversation sometimes where we equals anybody. It's just any possible person. That is not an exegetical option because of the context, number one. It's been floated by some people recently in order to try to avoid uh, the implications of the text for 1 John 1, 9 in terms of confession and to try to avoid the fact that this is talking about believers. See, the subject, this is not addressed to unbelievers. It's not just anybody, that anybody might claim this, but... We have to look at the text. Now, let's go back. Do we have... Let me show you how exegesis is done. You run across a first-person plural pronoun like this, and it says we. We ask the question, are there any other we's in the passage? Well, let's go back to verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we... Whoa, there we have it. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld. Who's the we there? The we there is primarily the... uh, Primarily... John himself, he's using it as an editorial we. We means I. But he's including the the other apostles. That's a secondary idea. It's not we anybody. It's not we, me, and the people I'm writing to. See, sometimes I may use a we in the pulpit where I'm talking. I'm including you as part of the we. I mean I, but I also include you as part of that. That's not what he's doing. When he says what we've heard, what we have seen, what we beheld, he means himself. First, in an editorial we, it's primarily I. But he's also including secondarily the, the other apostles. But he's a personal eyewitness. So the emphasis is on John first and the other apostles secondly, but that's the collection of, of the we. Verse 3, what we have seen, what heard, we proclaim to you also. Still the same we. John primarily, the other apostles secondarily. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. There he's not talking about 
the readers and himself. He's talking about the other apostles and himself. Our fellowship, my fellowship, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write. Ah, there we. That's important. We write. Who's writing the letter? John, Paul, Matthew, Thomas. Are they all writing this letter? No. John's writing. That's why I say it's an editorial we primarily I. Because John is writing. So he's the primary emphasis in the we. He's really saying I. So if we get the gist of this, to really catch the thrust of it, we, we can translate it I, and that will make more sense. I, but I also include my fellow apostles in the background. So that our joy may be made complete with the other apostles. Then we come to verse 5. Now remember, now in my Bible, I have a Ryrie Study Bible, and I have a Roman numeral 2, Conditions for Fellowship. I have a break there, a few editorial comments, plus a verse 5. Those weren't in the original. In fact, there's not even a, a paragraph break in the original. This last summer when uh, uh, I was in Britain, went to the British Library and saw examples of the Uncial documents, uh, some of the oldest documents, the Codex Sinaiticus and uh, Codex Alexandrinus who, that were on display there. And in what's called the Uncial documents of the original Greek text, there are no spaces between words. All the letters are written in capital letters. There's no punctuation, no commas, no periods, no colons, no semicolons. There's no capital initial capital words to begin a sentence. Every single letter is a capital an uppercase letter with no breaks between the words. They just Everything just runs on now. So we think, well, how in the world did they read that? But if you're familiar with any language, if I were to take an English Bible and do that and give it to you, you would read it. You would be, you, because you know the language, you would know what the distinct words were. So that was how they wrote. Now, when you remember that, you'll see that there's not going to be a paragraph break between verse 4 and verse 5. It's just going to be these things we write so that our joy may be made complete, and this is the message we have heard from him. Who's the we? The we is still John primarily and the apostles secondarily. It is not we, I, and the audience. It is not we, just anybody. We have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say, what does the we mean? The we is I, John, the apostle secondarily, but it is not I and the audience, and it is not just anybody. See, if you take that we as just anybody, then if anybody says that they don't have fellowship, that they have fellowship with him and they walk in the darkness, then they're a liar and they don't practice the truth. That's what that would mean. And you could take that and interpret that to mean that this is talking about unbelievers who aren't saved. But if the we doesn't mean anybody, then you can't interpret it to refer to just anyone that is making it an application to believer and unbeliever. If the we were to refer to John and his readers, then it would indicate if we, that is you and I, say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, and John might be using we to mean you. Sometimes we do that as teachers or parents. We use we to mean you. And then it, that could also be stretched, and it is stretched to indicate that John's talking about believer and unbeliever, and he would be saying then that if you claim to have fellowship with God and you're uh, living a certain lifestyle in darkness, then you're not practicing the truth, and so maybe you're not saved. Now, there are those who do that. 
But once you understand that to be consistent, the we here has to mean I, John, first and foremost, the apostles as a group with me secondarily, that that's the meaning of we, it can't be applied to an unbeliever. It absolutely excludes believer versus unbeliever as the issue in 1 John. Are you clear on this? I mean, more people get confused over this and end up going in all kinds of strange directions in 1 John because they want to make these tests that, are, that we'll study in John tests of whether or not you're saved or not. And the implication of that is that if you are committing certain acts or not obeying the Scriptures in certain ways, then maybe you aren't really saved to begin with. And that's one of the major planks in the position of what is called lordship salvation. And they would interpret this to be tests of faith, how to know whether or not you're really saved. Now, the problem with all of that is that that you really don't ever know that you're really saved. Because what happens if 10, 15, 20 years from now, I start not doing these things that are these tests. I start failing these tests of faith that are in 1 John. Then, then maybe, I, maybe I really wasn't ever saved. Maybe I had a, a profession of faith. And see, that's where they go. So there's no real assurance of salvation in what is called lordship salvation. You, you don't ever really know that you're saved, and yet even at the end of 1 John, he says these, these are written at the end of John, the Gospel of John, these are written that you might know that you have eternal life. So the Scriptures are clear that we can know with certainty whether or not we're saved, but if we, take, if we make some false decisions in trying to interpret these passages, then what we end up with is uncertainty about salvation, and we start making... Uh, non-issues, issues in relationship to salvation. So in verse 6, John says, and let's, let's translate it that way so we catch the, the import of what he is saying. If I say that I have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, I lie and I don't practice the truth. John is saying through the use of a third-class condition here that it is possible even for him as an apostle to make a false claim with relationship to fellowship, and even as, a, even as an apostle, he can walk in darkness. Now, that's important because there are many people who think that walking in the darkness is tantamount to being an unbeliever. And what we just demonstrated by looking at the meaning of we is that if we means John, and John's an apostle, that John admits that it is potential for him to walk in darkness. So walking in darkness then can't be related to salvation, but signifies something other than salvation. That affects the next verse. But if we, or if I walk in the light, verse 7, if I walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we, meaning the apostles, have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So he is talking, the first person plurals here, the we and the us and the our, all relate to the apostolic group. He's using themselves as an example. He's using this group he is intimately aware of as his example. And this tells us that uh, this is not talking about unbelievers versus believer, but two different walks 
in the Christian life, that the believer can walk in darkness and the believer can, or the believer can walk in light. So this brings us to a very important doctrine that is emphasized throughout the Scripture called the doctrine of walking. The doctrine of walking, point number one, we're going to look at the key word here. The key word here is peripeteo. The peripeteo is used literally of the forward step-by-step motion. What we do when we leave the building, unless we're in a hurry to get to lunch, we walk. Figuratively, the phrase walking is used to, um, of con- how one conducts oneself. It's used figuratively to conduct oneself or to behave in a particular manner or to live. It is used figuratively for to conduct oneself, to behave in a particular manner, or to live. Walk refers to a lifestyle, how one lives. It emphasizes that, that our life is lived one moment at a time, one decision at a time. Sometimes this metaphorical meaning may extend to the entire panorama of a person's life, including thought life and overt action. Physically, walking is one of the best forms of exercise. When we go out and walk, we exercise almost every, every uh, muscle group in our body. It works more muscles than running, jogging, or just working out with, with weights. It develops circulation, improves our breathing, supports regular elimination of waste, and strengthens our heart. Thus, spiritual walking works all of the spiritual skills. Our walk is based on all the spiritual skills from confession of sin all the way through uh, inner happiness. So, spiritual walking is based on all of the different spiritual skills we have emphasized in understanding the spiritual life. It in It exercises the muscles of the spiritual life. It increases the circulation of doctrine in the soul. It improves the inhale and exhale of doctrine. It eliminates the waste of human viewpoint from the soul and replaces it with divine viewpoint. And it strengthens the soul through the construction of our soul fortress, which protects and defends the soul from the outside pressure of adversity and prosperity. So walking, therefore, is a term that encapsulates everything related to spiritual life, our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. Point number two, walking then is a crucial term to describe the characteristics of the believer's life. It describes the characteristics of the believer's life and the overall or the general mandate is to walk worthy. What we have to do is go through all these scriptures that talk about walk. There's all kinds of scriptures in, in the, in, that use the phrase walk. We're to walk by means of the Spirit. We're to walk in the light. We're to walk in truth. We're to um, uh, walk in love. We're to walk in good works. We're to walk in wisdom. All of these display different categories. So what we have to do is break it down and categorize and classify this so that we can understand the dynamics of the believer's spiritual walk. And the general overall summation of this is that we are to walk worthy. Ephesians 4.1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now this isn't legalism. 
every now and then somebody says, well, you emphasize that you have to live a certain way as a Christian, then, then that's legalism. No, it's not legalism. It's called responsibility. Just like your children, they're always a member of your family. Sometimes they walk in a manner that you consider worthy of your family, and sometimes they don't. But they're still members of your family. And they are yours, and they can't ever lose that, uh, no matter what you do. They are yours. So we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God. We're members of the royal priesthood. We're members of the royal family of God. And we're to live a life that reflects that. Colossians 1.10 states, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice, the worthy walk results in bearing fruit, which is, we'll see is the result of the Holy Spirit. We don't produce fruit. He produces fruit. It's a consequence of fellowship, abiding in Christ, and it's a consequence of increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, how do we know God? We only know God by studying the Word. We don't know, learn about God through intuitive flashes. We don't know about God by osmosis. We don't know about God by buying good books and Christian books start taking them home, putting them on the shelf. We don't even have an increase in the knowledge of God by taking a lot of notes in Bible class and going home and putting them in our doctrinal notebook. We have to uh, transfer this from gnosis to epinosis, which means that we have to believe it and we have to meditate on it and we have to understand it. And that's all part of the circulation of doctrine in the soul. First Thessalonians 2.12, So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. So this is the general mandate, is that we are to walk in a manner worthy or consistent with our calling as members of the royal family of God. Now the first category of this, if you break it down in terms of the phraseology used in the Greek, the first indicates walking in a sphere or a realm. Walking in the sphere or realm. This is the use of the Greek word in, the preposition in, plus the dative of sphere, or sometimes simply the use of the dative of sphere or, or location. For example, in Romans 13.13, 13, we are to walk in the day. In Ephesians 5.8, 1 John 1.6, in the light. That's in the sphere of the light. It's a location. It's not by means of. It is in the sphere of something, in the, in the sphere of revelation. We're not to walk in the sphere of darkness, 1 John 1.7. We are to walk in newness of life, Romans 6.4. We are to walk in Christ, Colossians 2.6. Ephesians 5.2 and 2 John 6 states we are to walk in love. Ephesians 2.10, we are to walk in good works. Colossians 4.5, we are to walk in wisdom. Colossians, or 2 John 4 states we are to walk in truth. In the negative, in Ephesians 4.17, we are to walk not in the emptiness of our minds like Gentiles. 2 Corinthians 4.2, we are not to walk in craftiness, which is the Greek word panorgia, meaning deceitful cunning, but we are to walk in this sphere. So we can chart this in terms of the way we look at salvation. We have our eternal position in Christ and we have our temporal relation. 
Now, at the instant of salvation, we are entered into Christ. The Scripture says we're in Christ. This is a, a dative, a sphere, or location. We are in Christ. We are placed in Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we can never lose that position. In terms of our temporal relationship, we're placed in fellowship. Now, this same sphere is also called the sphere of light, truth, wisdom, love, good works. We often refer to it as the area, the arena of being filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. When we sin, we are no longer walking by means of the Spirit, but we begin to walk by means of the flesh or the sin nature. And out here we have the realm of darkness. And so we start to live our life based on the sin nature operating in darkness. And the only way to recover is through confession of sin, 1 John 1.9. And that puts us back in this sphere. But it is not simply a, a place, a location, but it also involves living by means of something or action. This is indicated by the next phrase, which is similar in the Greek, but it involves the instrumental use of the dative of means. The instrumental use of the dative of means. And this emphasizes the fact that we are to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. We are to walk by means of His Word. We are to walk by means of uh, the illumination of His Word. So this is emphasized in the phrase in plus the instrumental dative of means. So it's not just being in fellowship as a state, but it is walking by means of the Holy Spirit. And then we are to walk according to a norm or a standard, and that norm or standard is expressed in God's Word. Galatians 5.16 expresses the overall command to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. It is contrasted with walking by means of the flesh. So just as in 1 John 1, we have a contrast between walking in darkness and walking in the light, which are sphere. In Galatians 5.16, the emphasis is on means. Let's look at Galatians 5.16. Paul says, I say walk. Present active indicative by means of the Spirit. Excuse me, it's an aorist imperative and it emphasizes uh, priority. Walking by means of the Spirit and you will not carry out. And there you have a very strong statement in the Greek. It's a double negative. Not in English, double negatives are wrong. You have two neg a double negative in English, it equals a positive. But in Greek, you can pile negatives up on one another for emphasis. And so when you have a double negative plus a subjunctive mood in the verb, it's the strongest way of stating a negation in the Greek. Now, what this means is walk by means of the Spirit and it will be impossible for you to bring to completion the lust of the flesh. That's what that verse is saying. So, either you walk by the Spirit or you walk by the flesh. And that's the emphasis, is that it juxtaposes the two so that you only have two options. 
You're either walking by means of the Spirit or you're walking by means of the flesh or the sin nature. Now, in comparison, we're either walking in the light or we're walking in darkness. So we compare the two. They're talking about the same thing, just in a different, different way. We're either walking by means of the Spirit or we're walking um, by means of the sin nature. Then we come to four, point number four. The basis for the believer's walk then is his new position in Jesus Christ. His new position in Jesus Christ, Romans 6, 4. Now let's get the context. In Romans 6, 1, Paul asks the rhetorical question, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that is, the import of baptizo is identification, all of us who have been identified into Christ Jesus have been identified into His death. Therefore, conclusion, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that, purpose clause, final purpose clause, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk, so we too might walk in newness of life. Why do we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's what this is describing. The baptism here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whereby at the instant of salvation, the believer is placed in union with Christ and we are identified with His death, burial, and resurrection. Why does that happen? Just so we can go to heaven? No, that's not what the text says. The text says we're identified with Christ so we might walk in newness of life. That's the purpose for the believer's life is to demonstrate the power of God in terms of sanctification in phase two spirituality. Romans six five goes on to say, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old self was crucified with him that nature might be done away with, future tense, potential, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. As believers, we are no longer enslaved to sin because at the instant of salvation, the power of the sin nature was broken. Prior to salvation, you have only one option, live in the power of the sin nature. You're either going to do it on commit personal sins or human good, but it all comes from the sin nature. But after salvation, we can, we walk, can walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. So, the basis for walking then, that is, the Christian way of life, is our identification with Christ's death. This is positional death which happens at the instant of salvation. It breaks the power of the sin nature. That's the basis for the Christian life. That is a reality. It's not experiential. We didn't feel anything. You don't feel like you're suddenly free. You don't jump for joy, run down the street, leap over the pews, or sing hallelujah. You might have if that was the pressure you felt in the church you were attending at the time, but, but that's not the normal Christian experience. The basis for walking then is, is our identification with Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection. B, positional death, therefore, frees us from slavery to the sin nature, but it does not necessarily free us from the sin nature. We still have a sin nature. After Five minutes after salvation, 
you're just as capable of committing any and every sin you could commit before you were saved. Just because you're saved doesn't suddenly make you honorable if you were not honorable before. It doesn't make you a wonderful person, give you a nice personality, and mean that you. And it doesn't mean that you uh, won't sin anymore. You still have the same sin nature. The only thing that is ultimately going to control the sin nature is the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine. Well, at the point of salvation, probably all you know is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you're fortunate, somebody told you about 1 John 1, 9 so you can recover fellowship, but you don't know much more than that. And so you have to learn, and we all do, we have to learn what happened to us at salvation. And Christ did, God did over, over 40 things for us at the instant of salvation, and it's on the basis of those 40 things that we're able to live the spiritual life. And part of that is that we are freed from the power of the sin nature, but not from the presence of the sin nature. So see, the potential is there for every believer, but it's activated only by our volition to carry out the mandates of walking. That's the import of the command. It's an active voice. It means you and I perform the action of the verb. It's up to our volition. We have to make a decision each and every moment. Am I going to live right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, or am I going to live by the lust of my sin nature? What is in control? So the potential is there for every believer to advance to spiritual maturity, but the issue then in the Christian life is our volition, whether we want to apply doctrine or not. And then D, the goal or purpose is to no longer obey the dictates of the sin nature, but to advance spiritually. That's what it means to walk in newness of life. The goal that God has for our life is to advance spiritually. Now, that's not our goal yet. That only comes as we learn doctrine. See, most of us would get saved, and our goal was to avoid hell. Our goal was to avoid the lake of fire. Uh, maybe if life was pretty miserable, your goal might be to solve a few problems, but usually we're just glad to, as one person said, to have a little fire insurance. We're not too excited about life insurance. Wake up a little bit. You know, we want to avoid hell. We're not too concerned about experiencing the abundant life. So, uh, God has a different plan. His plan is for, to conform us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a profound thing to get a, get, get a handle on in our own thinking. You might have a number of different goals in life. You might have a goal of career advancement. You might have a goal of having a certain number of children, grandchildren, living in a certain kind of house, having a certain kind of lifestyle, being able to enjoy certain hobbies or activities. But none of that is on God's scale of values for your life. God's goal for your life and my life is to conform us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And at some point, we have to realize that we're either, we're either walking in, living in conformity to that or we're not. See, if our goal is to have an enjoyable life and a certain lifestyle and do certain things in life, and God's goal is to make us like Christ, then there's a conflict there. And until we decide that, that our goal for our life is, is God's goal for our life, which is spiritual maturity and conformity to Christ then we're always going to be having problems and running into something called divine discipline and uh, just making ourselves miserable in life. We have to understand there is a divine perspective on life and it's not restricted to three score and ten years. Okay, point number five in the doctrine of the Christian walk. Another key verse is that the believer is to walk as a child of light because positionally... He is already light. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 
5. Verse 8. Ephesians 5.8, Paul says, For you, talking to the Ephesian believers, you were formerly darkness. That is positional darkness. You were formerly unbelievers. But now you are light in the Lord. Okay, let's look at this. In terms of our diagram, when we trust Christ as Savior, we are placed in Christ. This is positional light. Outside of Christ is positional darkness. Positional light and positional darkness are not the same as experiential light and experiential darkness. He says to these Ephesian believers, you, you were darkness, now you're light. But then he says, walk as children of light. Now, if walking in light is the same as being light, then he wouldn't say that. When he says you are children of light, he still has to tell them to walk as children of light. Because as children of light, they're not. They're walking in darkness. They are living with sin nature control, and they are not walking as members of God's royal family. So he has to correct them. You were darkness, but now you're light. Walk as children of light. You might go to work for some corporation or company, and, and they have a certain dress code, and you don't meet that when you show up at work. And you say, well, they say, well... You're now working for our company, and this is how we do things. Live accordingly. Dress accordingly. Well, that's what Paul is saying. Now you are in the body of Christ, and there is a certain plan and procedure and protocol for how a believer lives. Walk as children of light. And then verse 9, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And that is analogous to the fruit produced or the production of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. 22 and 23. So what Paul is, what we see here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, is the reality that the believer can be light but not walk as light. And so the believer has to learn to walk as light. Now let's turn back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. I mean, 1 John chapter 1. Verse 6, if we say, that is, if I claim that I have fellowship, that is, that I am enjoying intimacy with God, and walk, the word yet is not in the original languages, is not in the original Greek, and walk in the darkness, that is, uh, operate on the sin nature, I lie and do not practice the truth. In contrast, he says, but if I walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So fellowship then is based on a certain type of lifestyle. And as soon as that lifestyle is violated through sin, then fellowship is broken. And then the last clause establishes the basis for cleansing. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the principle. Now, blood of Christ does not refer to the literal, physical, hemoglobin, plasma, red blood cells, white blood cells of the Lord Jesus Christ. The term blood of Christ refers to His spiritual substitutionary death. The phrase shedding blood in Scripture does not refer to the physical act of causing someone to leak blood out of their body. 
Let me give you just a very simple illustration. In Genesis chapter 9, in the Noahic Covenant, the principle for capital punishment is laid down. It said, if anyone sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall also be shed. That is a statement and is always understood to be a statement about murder. If anybody commits murder, takes the life of somebody else through murder. Now, if I take the life of somebody else through poisoning, does that still apply? Certainly. Did they bleed? No. See, shedding blood is an idiom for violent death or causing death of someone. It does not mean physically bleeding to death. And that is a heresy that was brought into the church in the Middle Ages through Roman Catholic mysticism. Unfortunately, it was also picked up in the 18th century by a guy named Bingle who wrote a book on several word studies in the New Testament and has been promulgated down through the ages through various semi-mystic groups of uh, evangelical Protestants. But if you go through and you study the use of that phrase in Scripture, it never refers to, to physically leaking blood, but it is an idiom for violent death. And the blood of Jesus Christ does not mean that His physical blood is what washes away sin. That was a picture image that was used to give a concrete image to what happens in the spiritual realm that Christ in His death paid the penalty for our sins. He was separated from God the Father for three hours from 12 noon to 3 p.m. And during that time, God the Father poured out on Jesus Christ all the sins of the human race, past, present, and future. During that time, God the Father turned His back on the Lord. You have the covering of darkness on the earth at that time so that man could not see Jesus being, the sin being imputed to Christ during that time. And uh, it was during that time that Christ paid the penalty for sin. He did not die physically during that time. After it was over with, Jesus said, It is finished. Then He died physically. So it was the spiritual death of Christ on the cross, not His physical death, that paid the penalty for our sins. Now, that does not mean the physical death was unimportant. He had to die physically because He had to be resurrected. All of that is important to show His victory over death. But the emphasis is on the work that Christ did on the cross. That's the basis for cleansing from all sin. This does not mean, and we'll have to, I'll come back and address this next time. This does not mean that because your sins have been paid for by Christ's death on the cross, that His blood continually cleanses you from all sin, that therefore we don't need to confess sin. 1 John 1 7 here lays down the principle. 1 John 1 9 gives you the mechanics. 1 John 1.7 says that the reason 1 John 1.9 works is because of the death of Christ on the cross. So you have to interpret 1 John 1.9 on the basis of 1 John 1.7, not the other way around. You don't take 1 John 1.7 as, as the overriding principle and then say, well, then 1 John 1.9 really doesn't mean you have to confess your sins for forgiveness and cleansing because the blood of Christ already did that. See, if verse 7 is taken as the overriding principle, then verse 9 is irrelevant. So verse 7 has to be understood as the basis for the reason why 
verse 9, can function and operate. The reason we have forgiveness in verse 9 is because Christ paid the penalty for sin in verse 7. And we'll come back next time and look at how that works together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word and to see that that, uh, even though we sin, we do not lose our salvation, but it does affect our our fellowship, our, the enjoyment of our fellowship with You and our, our advance in the Christian life. But You have provided a great solution that by simply admitting or acknowledging our sins to You, because Christ has already paid the penalty for our sins, we receive instant forgiveness, we cover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can advance to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, paid the penalty for every sin we will ever commit, past, present, and future. And Scripture says that we have salvation simply by accepting Him, that is, believing that He died on the cross for our sins. So that right now, all you have to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. You don't need to pray. You don't need to walk an aisle, raise your hand, or any other thing. God knows what we trust in for our salvation. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we would be challenged to understand the things that we have studied today, the importance of our fellowship, enjoying our fellowship, and the benefits and blessings that you have provided for us in Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.